0: The topic of non-suicidal self-injury, or NSSI for short, is a tough topic regardless of the age of those who engage in it. Through this podcast, it has been my goal to not only explore the psychology of self-injury in the latest research on NSSI, but to increase empathy for those who feel alone in their lived experience of self-injury. In last month's episode, we talked about self-injury among those over age 40. In this episode, we discussed self-injury among children under age 12. Just how prevalent is the behavior among young children? Do the types and methods they use differ from those who self-injure at other ages? What about the reasons they give for self-injuring? To answer these questions and to share tips for parents who learn about their own young children engaging in NSSI, I am joined today, all the way from Belgium, by Dr. Imke Battens and Lisa Van Hove. Welcome to the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast, a resource for parents, professionals, and people with lived experience. I'm your host, Dr. Nicholas Westers, clinical psychologist at Children's Health, associate professor at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas, Texas, and chair of the Media and Communications Committee of the International Society for the Study of Self-Injury, or I-S-S-S, or simply i Dr. Imke Battens is a licensed family therapist and associate professor at the Department of Psychology and Education Sciences at the Freya Universiteit Brussels in Belgium, also known as VUB. She's an international renowned expert in the field of etiology, prevention, and intervention of non-suicidal self-injury. Dr. Battens is chair of the International Joint Research Group for the Study of Self-Injury in School Settings, also known as ICSIS. She is currently co-editing, together with Drs. Janice Whitlock and Elizabeth Lloyd Richardson, an Oxford University Press handbook on non-suicidal self-injury, which will be published in the beginning of next year. She's passionate about translating her research to a broad audience via a freely available Flemish website at ixisgroup.org and includes leaflets in many languages. She gives at least two talks and workshops per week for a variety of stakeholders, ranging from parents, schools, mental health professionals, and researchers. And she also supervises our other interviewee for today, Lisa. Lisa is a junior researcher at VUB. She's currently conducting several studies on NSSI and self-harming behaviors in special populations, including older adults and children. Her PhD, supervised by Dr. Battens, focuses on NSSI in older adults. She also operates as a research assistant for the International Consortium on Self-Injury in Educational Settings and works as a clinical psychologist with children, adolescents, and young adults in a clinical group practice. Thank you both for participating today in our very first, I guess, multiple-person, multi-interviewee podcast episode.
1: Thank you so much for the invitation. We feel really honored to be able to contribute to this amazing podcast series.
0: How did each of you first become interested in researching self-injury in the first place?
1: Well, for me, it's rather a coincidence, actually. Uh, it was at the start of my master's that I was allocated to a professor in statistics uh, for my master's thesis. And I must say I was quite worried about his So uh, I was worried he might expect me to write something on fundamental subject or like a theoretical paper on physics. So when I first met him, I expressed my words to him and I, I told him I would really like to have like a clinical subject, for example, like behavioral problems in adolescence or depression in children. And then really, by coincidence, he received a flyer for a conference on uh, self-harm and parasuicide um, in the Netherlands. And he was like, well, this came by post today. <laughs> what do you think about this subject? I don't know nothing about it. Uh, do you feel like going to the conference? It was really a coincidence for me to start uh, NSSI research and then uh, I did my master thesis and I had like a thousand respondents because I, uh, at the time I did a, a web survey which was quite novel in the time and then quite unexpectedly there were thousands of adolescents who answered to web survey and then Things got rolling, and I, I met Lawrence Glass, who became my supervisor in my PhD, and and I more specifically, um, NSSI and it's in childhood. It's really just a very recent interest because a few years ago I was doing an intervention study. Um, NSSI adolescents and I broadcasted the intervention study very broadly on TV and radio. And we had an exclusion criteria um, so children younger than 12 and adolescents older than 18, because I really didn't even imagine that children would apply for this study. And then I got a lot of calls from GPs, schools, parents that wanted to uh, apply for the study for their children. And so that's why I just started also the NSSI in elementary school studies.
0: And how about you, Lisa?
1: Well, for me, it's, it's less of a coincidence, I think. <laughs> well, first of all, when I
2: was about, I think, 15, 14 years old, I became aware of a couple of friends that actually engaged in NSSI. And I remember that it was, for me, it was really difficult to understand why someone would intentionally hurt themselves. And I wanted to understand it better because I think at the time I didn't know a lot about it in general. And then a couple of years later, actually, I was studying my master's in psychology. And I encountered Imke, uh, who was teaching a couple of classes there as a professor. And one of her classes was about NSSI, in which she actually explained why people self-injure and what are the functions of self-injury and so on. And yeah, that immediately sparked my interest again. And I was lucky enough after that class to uh write my master thesis under supervision of IMCA, and yeah, we're here today, <laughs> I think two years later or three years later,
0: yeah. Well, I would love to hear about some of the research that both of you referenced, and Dr. Battens, you had mentioned that a number of parents, schools, and professionals were inquiring about participating in enrolling in the research for children under age 12, which I think is an under-researched population when it comes to non-suicidal self-injury. How prevalent is NSSI among young children, that is children, say, under age 12?
2: First of all, I think it's really important that we, that we have to take into account that most studies thus far have focused on researching elementary, um, NSSI in elementary schools, but retrospectively, so to speak. So they ask individuals about the onset of NSSI behavior. For example, I'm 26. And if you would ask me something about when I was eight years old or something like that, I wouldn't really be able to recall it. So obviously that leads to a lot of biases such as recall bias and also leads to a larger variability in general. And studies that have performed a retrospective design, so to speak, they have indicated that NSSI is prevalent among one to 5% of the individuals um, who say that it started or that they started to self-injure before the age of 10. So which actually underlines how important it is to research NSSI in young children. And there are also a lot of researchers, or a lot of research, that's an an overstatement, not a lot of research, it's actually a scarcity of of researchers who looked into self-injury in elementary school children by directly asking them about self-injury. And when we take a look at those lifetime prevalence rates, we actually see prevalence rates of 7 to 9%, which is actually a lot higher. I mean, 1 to 5 versus 7 to 9, it's quite a difference. So that also... On the lines, yet again, the importance of directly asking children, do you engage in NSSI, yes or no? But it's just a really difficult thing to do because we don't really have age-adequate assessment tools at the moment. So we're a little bit hesitant to ask children directly about NSSI, which actually leads to us not knowing a lot about the prevalence of NSSI in elementary school
0: children. I imagine one common question we would get, and you kind of alluded to this, is, asking young children about such a behavior people might wonder are there any iatrogenic effects that is is it going to be triggering to ask a young child about non-suicidal self-injury or worse put the idea in their head if they haven't thought about it to begin with
1: so indeed there's a lot of hesitation about examining and in young children because we don't want to put in any ideas in their head and then there's a also from the ethical commissions and researchers, there's a lot of ethical considerations which need to be considered when doing NSSI research in elementary schools. So I do think it's a very important subject to examine, and we really need to invest in, in gaps in research in this domain, but we need to do it very thoughtfully and also really develop age-appropriate NSSI assessment tools, but also research on potential effects or biases uh, when questioning children. We do know uh, in other research domains with adolescents and adults that it doesn't have an energetic effect or that it doesn't have a negative effect when questioning the behavior, but it's, it's something that we really don't know in the population of young children.
0: That's a common question I know people have when it comes to asking about suicide and people think, including parents, That if they were to ask their child or any child were to be asked about suicidal thoughts and behaviors, that if they haven't thought about it, that it would put the idea in their head. And what we know based on research is that's not true. Usually, if anything, they're less likely to experience suicidal thoughts or behaviors or at least less likely to act on them should they have them and that people actually do better when they're asked and I know Dr. Jennifer Muhlenkamp, who we interviewed in episode two way back when in, a, in season one of this podcast, she and others had developed the Signs of Self-Injury program that they implemented in schools as a prevention for non-suicidal self-injury and found that asking about self-injury did not increase the likelihood of participants engaging in non-suicidal self-injury. But that, I think, was in high school, maybe middle school. And here we are talking about younger children.
1: I did do a very large pilot study with adolescents, age 12. And there we, say we see the same results as Dr. Molenkamp, so that there really is no iatrogenic effect. So I really do believe that we do need to be mindful and, and, and have the ethical considerations. But I, I don't think that if we have an age-appropriate assessment tool, or for example, just a very brief screener, a yes or no question, I really don't believe it will have uh, induce any harm. But of course, we need to be mindful when we do studies in NSSI, uh, in elementary school samples.
0: And Lisa, you said that between seven and nine percent prevalence among children under twelve.
2: Yeah, six to twelve years old. Yeah.
0: What types or methods of self injury do young children engage in, and is it any different than those who self injure at other ages when they're, let's say, they're older?
2: Well, that's actually a really interesting question, but a very difficult question to answer because there's just not a lot of data on it. I looked into literature prior to this podcast, and I didn't really find anything about recent publications on methods in elementary school children. So we unfortunately have to look at, for example, teacher reports. And for example, the International Consortium on self Engine Educational Settings, ICSIS, they actually recently performed a study in which they asked elementary school staff about their experiences with NSSI in young children. And they were also asked about whether they think there are specific methods that are more prevalent in this age group. They actually said the next five methods, with the first one being carving skin. Um, so that was the one that they mentioned the most often. Then there was head banging, which was the second most often. And then they talked about interfering with wound healing, so picking at wounds, etc. And then cutting and hair pulling as well. So those were actually the five most frequent methods according to the elementary school staff. What is also important to know is that the methods that they talk about are actually the same methods that we see in adolescents. but there was a a difference in which methods are most prevalent, um, because when we look at systematic reviews on adolescents, then we actually see that cutting, for example, and self-hitting are much more prevalent among adolescents. For example, self-hitting isn't even mentioned by the elementary school staff so we can see a difference there even though the methods are quite the same when we look at the five most prevalent ones what is a difference or what has been suggested as a difference is the severity of the wounds so this has been suggested that the wounds caused by elementary school children so age 6 to 12 are less severe than those caused by adolescents and we think it's also hypothetical because again we don't have the data um, but we think that might be due to a higher acquired ability to solve injury in adolescents, and, and that they also may be more able to access certain objects, etc. While children might just choose the more easily accessible method, so to speak. So we think that that's going to be a difference. But it's something that we just think is going on, but we're not sure about it.
0: It's interesting to hear that carving was the most prevalent. For people listening, you also heard cutting, and we separate those because carving, it is cutting, but it's carving words or symbols into the skin. Can you share a little bit about why you think this might be one of the most prevalent methods in the younger age group, the ages 6 to 12?
2: I think that's a really difficult one, but like when we look at the reasons, again, in the same research that I just mentioned of ICSIS, when we look at the reasons that elementary schools staff indicated, one of the reasons was that they have difficulty with communicating their emotions. So perhaps one of the reasons why carving is the first most mentioned or most often mentioned method, because they
1: can symbolize in a way what they want to communicate, but lack the communicative tools to communicate thinking about the exact uh, question, because I think maybe carving and scratching was asked in the same item, wasn't it? Yeah. With the so, Yeah. So I think it's carving and scratching. And so scratching is far more easily accessible for NSSI, for elementary school children. So and that's as much as carving birds in the skin or whatever. It's far more superficial scratching, but then like making a mark on their hands. That's the idea that the teachers have.
0: Oh, so they were considering scratching as carving?
1: Yeah, as one.
0: okay. In my clinical work, and I'm sure in yours too, it's very different where when I work with mainly teenagers at this point, and they've carved words or symbols into the skin. And a lot of adolescents with eating disorders carve words such as fat into their skin. And so that's very qualitatively different to me than just cutting itself and very qualitatively different than scratching.
1: Yeah, and so it could be like they carved like a little flower on their hands or make like a, a drawing on their hands. So I don't think it's the same valence as what we see in our clinical work, but it's also a hypothesis. We don't have more insights into the, the details of the of these answers.
0: And I'd be curious to know if what they consider carving, they consider also like erasing, using an eraser to cause an abrasion that creates a design, and then they consider that as scratching, which is a little bit different than scratching, but it sounds like they're kind of grouping all that into one.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Earlier, Lisa, you had referenced different reasons why a young child might self-injure versus a teenager or adult. Why do you think, first of all, such young children, I mean, we're talking ages 6 up through age 12, why such young children self injure, and is it different from the reasons that teenagers and adults give for their self injury?
2: Again, unfortunately, no, no study has researched this, it, so it's also almost purely hypothetical or based on, on clinical work. But when I look at my clinical practice, for example, I think social media plays an important role, first of all, because they get curious and A lot of children beneath the age of 12 have difficulties in regulating emotions. They just don't know how to do it yet because developmentally, they're still looking for their ways to regulate emotions and stuff like that. So it's sometimes really difficult for some children. Many of them that I see in the clinical practice got into contact with NSSI on social media platforms and they just think, let me try it out and see what it does and then it kind of helps and regulate those emotions. So that's purely based on clinical work. Beside that, it was also a question asked to the elementary school staff in the ICSA study. So what they thought the reasons for engaging in an SSI were. It also had a lot to do with emotion regulation. For example, being able to cope with frustration, uh, but also to redirect anger. Some also mentioned self-punishments, and then they linked it to... A negative self-image, like in a way to punish themselves because they're not performing well, etc. Also, difficulty in communicating emotions in general. For them, it's a way to just be able to express what they're feeling towards others. Also, some reported managing stress as a reason. And I remember, because I also looked at the, as a research assistant, obviously, I also looked at the open-ended questions. And I remember a couple of them talking about how the pressure is really high these days. to so basically to succeed in school, parents that put a lot of pressure on their children, but also peer pressure was something that they regularly mentioned. And then aside that, a couple of them also talked about attention seeking which is kind of something that has, you know, like a, like a negative name, so to speak, as a reason. But many teachers or educators talked about that they don't have the attention that they need or that they require at home, and that it's a way for them to actually seek attention because they feel like the needs that they have are not met. That was also one of the reasons that they often talked about.
0: I was wondering if any teachers or people that participated in that study thought that the self-injury is about attention-seeking. I'm glad that it wasn't a whole lot. It sounds like a small number and that the most have recognized that it's to deal with difficult emotions.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I thought I thought it was also nice to see that the teachers or the educators that did think about attention-seeking, I think half of them thought about it as they don't get the attention that they need developmentally or emotionally at home and they don't actually know or have a lot of tools to gain that attention otherwise and then that's the way they're going to go to gain that attention so it was less negatively perceived i think as a function
0: more of an empathic approach from those teachers yes and I was also surprised to hear about the level of academic stress that the teachers had referenced as reasons for self injury I mean, academic stress for a six-year-old, 10-year-old, 11, 12-year-old, that's almost seemingly unnecessary to have that kind of stress academically at that age.
2: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but I think a lot, of, a lot about it was that their environment actually expects them to have high grades and they don't always know whether it's possible for themselves because a lot of... Children nowadays, unfortunately, or what was said in the in, in survey, um, a lot of educators indicated a negative self-image, even from the age of 6 to 12. A lot of parents are like, you have to get high grades, you have to succeed in school, it's really important. And you have that negative self-image as well. It's going to be really difficult to cope with that kind of pressure. So, And then you also have like the peer pressure parts. And if you combine those two, I can imagine it's really difficult as an elementary school age child to cope with all of that.
0: Well, one concern that we all have is that in this age group, if a 6-year-old or a 12-year-old, 10-year-old, any age child ages 6 to 12, if they were to start self-injuring, then they're going to be destined to continue to self-injure. What is the likelihood that a young child who self-injures will continue to self-injure into adolescence and or adulthood if we have this research data at all?
2: I feel like I have to repeat myself, but we don't really have that data. So it's, again, a really really difficult question to answer. However, there are some studies that have indicated that an earlier onset of NSSI actually is a potential risk factor for more severe and more frequent NSSI in adolescence. We don't really know in adulthood, but we do know about adolescence. And when we take a look at what might explain that, I've said it before, I think the heightened acquired ability first of all because when you've been self-injuring since you were a child it just increases while you grow older and so i think that's that might be a possible explanation for that on the other hand you also have the fact that the Behavior is very strongly learned behavior, coping behavior. So I can imagine it's really difficult to expand your toolbox of alternative behaviors when you know that that's the one that's going to work um, to cope with feelings, etc. But this, this is also something that has not been confirmed yet, so it's purely hypothetical. When we take a look at adulthood, there's really nothing we know at this point. So any longitudinal prospective study would be really welcome to know a bit more about
0: that. Dr. Battens, as a parent, if I were to come to you and I have a 10-year-old, my 10-year-old say is self-cutting, and I'm thinking, this is a huge deal. Is this something that they're going to struggle with when they're older? I'm really, really worried. What would you tell me as a parent?
1: I think I would recognize that it probably would be a very great shock for you as a parent because I don't think that most parents of children of elementary school know about this behavior or at least have it in their register as a potential behavior in childhood. Um, it is quite known in adolescents or university students, for example, but. As a parent of an elementary school, a child, uh, I can imagine it will get a lot of panic or emotions. You can feel very overwhelmed. Or I can also imagine because we see that the methods might be less severe and could be like scratching the skin or, or hitting your head against the wall. That uh, There might also be more uh, minimalizing or ignoring of the behavior, uh, that it's not always recognized as a parent as something which could be categorized as NSSI. So I think the first reaction is, is very important as a parent. I would definitely underscore that, that it's important to try, although it's far easier said than done. I would uh, underscore the fact that it's important to be supportive as a parent and empathic in the reaction. And definitely it's important to also inform parents about this behavior also in childhood. And that's something that's sometimes uh, occurs, but it's rather rare. And it doesn't always mean that they will go into adolescence or adulthood and keeping this coping behavior.
0: What are some other common worries that parents might have if their young child is self-injuring?
1: I think that a lot of parents discover NSSI in, in childhood that they're very often very worried that it's related to suicidality. They're worried about long-term effects that there's a risk for psychopathology or that, they, that there's really something wrong with their children. Or I think also very often they're very stressed as a parent because they, they're afraid or ashamed or worried that it's something it has something to do with themselves because it's also something a lot of parents tell me that they have the feeling that the schools or the professionals have a very negative view on, on them and they seem to induce that they're the ones to blame. Or they have at least a part in it. So a lot of parents feel very much ashamed or try to reflect if there's something that they had to do with it. They were maybe part of the cause why the child started self injuring. So I think there's quite a lot of worries that come up when you discover the anesthesia of your child.
0: What should parents look for if they are concerned their young child might be self injuring?
1: I don't think that there's really like one unique feature or signal or sign that will tell you that your child is self-injuring. There's no clear signal. I think a lot of the parents uh, discussed that they had the feeling that their child was overwhelmed, more distressed, more upset, also disconnected more from them and they didn't know what was going on, so they they felt worried. Other signals may be that they start wearing baggy clothes or long sleeves or unwillingness to change clothes, for example, for gym or swimming class, or they don't want you to come into the bathroom anymore, or unexplainable cuts or wounds or search terms, their tablets or phones. Related to NSSI or maybe some artwork related to the topic of NSSI, that should definitely be like signals for a parent to be more mindful for this potential behavior. But I think that most parents indicate that they have the feeling something is wrong, but they don't just can put their finger on it, what is going on.
0: Sticking with the age range of 6 to 12, if a parent finds out that their 6 to 12-year-old is self-injuring or suspects that their 6 to 12-year-old child is self-injuring, how should they approach it? What should they do?
1: I think the, the initial reaction of a parent is really important. They should try to react in a calm and supportive way. If parents feel lost or overwhelmed, they can also just indicate that they maybe don't know exactly how to react at this time, but that they're there for them and that they're willing to talk to their child and that they are willing to look together. Uh, so that the child knows it it isn't alone in this. So it's really important to have a general, empathic, and non-judgmental attitude that they try to validate as well their emotions and their willingness to talk about NSSI and to really try to provide a safe environment and a way to co-regulate overwhelming emotions as a parent. It isn't a very good idea to demand your child to stop the self-injury immediately or constantly check For example, if a child has access to certain objects or a lot of my parents, for example, check the clothes when they wash them and look for blood marks or anything or check the garbage bin for tissues with blood on it. So I really think for some parents, it's a way to cope with their overwhelming feelings and a way to get some information or some control. But it's really important that parents know that this might be like a reinforcing negative cycle and which will maybe lead to your child to hide the NSSI more or to disconnect with the parent more or even increase the severity or the frequency of NSSI. So try to not step into the loop of control but try to stay connected, provide a safe environment and reach out if you have the feeling that either you or your child is stuck in the cycle. I think what,
2: what's also important is when you as a parent find out about your child self-injuring and it's at the spot so to speak so you actually see the wounds that has been caused it's really important that you do not take care of it as a parent or try to do this as neutral as possible but it's best that you just go to a gp and let them take care of it because we know that that's kind of a soothing behavior which can positively reinforce an ssi so it's really important that they don't take care of it as parents but that they let a professional
1: do it for them
0: even if it's a superficial wound, would you suggest that too?
1: Maybe for a superficial wound, they can do it together with the child and also learn the child how to disinfect and put on a Band-Aid, for example, without showing very big emotions or being very distant. Just do it the same way as you would do it when they fell with their bike or something. So I think that the attitude of the parent is really important.
0: So stay calm, be neutral, Matter of fact, Mm -hmm. we're going to take care of this. That way it's not accidentally reinforcing the behavior. But I think a lot of parents would actually err on the side of being more overtly angry and say, don't ever do this again. How helpful is that kind of a response?
1: I think if they overly react there, it would have a very negative outcome for the child. I think that they will feel more ashamed, more negative emotions. They feel overwhelmed. That might be a trigger for a new NSSI episode. So... Uh, Although I can imagine that for parents it's quite overwhelming to discover, to, to take care of the wounds, but to try to do it in the same way as you would do for any other small superficial wound.
0: It always saddens me when I hear a child getting punished for engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, because I know that's often one of the functions and reasons why they self-injure to begin with. While I understand parents are worried, punishing their child rarely results in at least the long-term positive effect that they hope to. It might stop in the short term, but probably damages or risks damaging the relationship. There's always that balance between warmth versus control, and in that case, control would usurp and take over the warmth and could damage some of that relationship with a young child, I imagine.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, indeed. And it, it heightens the risk as well that they just deconnect with you as parents and they don't tell you anymore and they just try to hide their behaviors more for you. Yeah. But I can imagine as well as a parent that you feel overwhelmed and it frustrates you and you feel powerless. For some people, it might be also just the first very intuitive reaction. So I think you should also be mild as a parent. You can also just do what you do as a parent and acknowledge that you feel overwhelmed or frustrated or very worried or very angry or that you just don't understand. I think in that case, it's also very important to try to take good care of yourself and find somebody to talk to about your own feelings as a parent and your own frustrations or feelings of powerlessness or anger uh, and that redirect it to your child.
0: Parents are doing the best they can. I think a lot of times it is that default in just being so fearful or concerned, almost like if their child were to run into the street, mm-hmm. that they're going to want to raise their voice and become more stern to get them to change their behavior. I think that's a fair default. Parents are just doing their best, and, and I mm-hmm. think it's okay for them to express concern for the behavior, of course, because if the kid see <laughs> sees their parent doesn't show any care, they don't care. That's also a risk. So it's really tricky being a parent, figuring out how to balance how to respond.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I really can't imagine what it is as a parent to try to cope with this. And a lot of parents feel a lot of secondary mental distress, uh, feel very worried, but they try their best. It's all about trying to be self reflective as a parent as well and also just try to be authentic. It's It's really okay to say, I really don't know what to do with this and I really... This really stresses me out. but Maybe just afterwards, even like reframe, like, sorry, baby, mama was maybe upset. That's also a very important, like a very important example that you set there as a parent.
0: Yeah, owning any problem responses and admitting them and apologizing and asking forgiveness is okay to do. If we were to give parents specific examples, give them the words, what are some sample comments, statements, or questions parents can use when speaking to their 6- to 12-year-old child about self-injury? Can you give them some statements and quotations for them that they might be able to practice or use with their child? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So, for example, if you're worried uh, that your child is engaging in NSSI and you, ha- you have difficulty for initiating the conversation, you can say something like, it seems like it has been very difficult for you lately. And I've heard the podcasts or uh, radio shows or or media that sometimes when children have like a hard time, um, some of them start self-injuring as a way to deal with those issues. Is this maybe also something which happened to you? It's like a very curious, open question if you're worried about potential uh, NSSI engagement. And then if there's like a discovery of NSSI and your child begins to talk about it, Really try to validate their willingness to do that. For example, by saying, I really appreciate your willingness to talk about this about me. I know it's not an easy thing to do. And for example, elaborate on on what is NSSI for them. You can say, for example, I know that self-injury can have like different meanings or functions. I would like to understand what is happening to you. And and can you help me understand what self-injury means to you? Something like that. Or maybe also validating that it's important for them to talk and that you're there for them. For example, say, know that I'm here for you and that you can talk to me. Let me know if there's anything that I can do for you. So also really trying to be a safe and holding environment, but also trying to recognize their boundaries or if they're not willing to talk to you at that time, also be okay with that. So I think that these are some sample statements. I think the most important key message should be, I'm here for you. Let me help you or let me, you're not alone in this. We'll figure it out together and just really try to be respectful, curious and and empathic and try to co-regulate their overwhelming feelings.
0: Lisa, do you have some examples that you might recommend as well?
2: The most important ones, especially the, the respectful curiosity, is very important, I think. So that the questions that you pose are, so respectful, you, you want to know more about it and, and the child can feel like you're actually open to talk about it and that you're not going to judge them. For example, can you help me understand how self-injury helps you feel better? So that you don't immediately start to, to explicitly ask, it, but it's more like I want to understand what you're going through or why it helps you. So that's like an example of, of how to gain more insight into the behavior by being respectful and curious at the same time
0: yeah i think as a father i might say something along the similar lines like buddy this really worries me but i want to make sure i understand your struggle and and what it is that you're doing and what you're getting out of it in what ways has this been helpful for you and then listening kind of like what you're both saying and then highlighting is like hey you can always come to me i would rather you come to me when you have that urge Than to do it to yourself, and we'll get through this together, like you're saying, and being able to provide that safe space rather than flip out. I mean, I could say that right now, but what in the moment it might be a little bit more difficult. I imagine it'd be much more difficult. Mm -hmm. So those are some sample comments you gave. What about sample behavioral strategies parents can use to help their six to twelve year old child who self injures, whether that's to support them emotionally or to support them move toward cessation of self injury?
1: So NSSI is very often related to emotion regulation difficulties. So as a parent here, you, you can really play like a key role in supporting them we believe that emotional regulation is not only an individual process but it's also something that you do together with other people so it's also something you can help or assist your child in learning new emotion regulation strategies there's several steps for example emotional awareness talk to your child and explore what are you feeling where you feel certain feelings where do you feel it in your body and or just just emotional acceptance it's okay to feel uh, also overwhelming feelings, and then a step further is also to help them give words to these feelings, and also to differentiate emotion emotion words. So not only this sucks or I'm super mad or angry. Like okay, I hear your frustration here, and it could be this makes you a little bit angry, but also I feel there may be something that makes you sad as well. So trying to make more differentiations between emotions. And really trying to be supportive when they try new emotional regulation strategies or if they feel overwhelmed, that you really, as a parent in this stage, which is different as what I would say for parents with adolescents, for example, but in this stage, you can really co-regulate uh, as a parent for a, a child in elementary school. So really try to find situation or means to suit them, for example, to have like a holding environment, like quiet place or like something warm or cuddly, or on the other side, maybe you can distract them with something and you can ask them, do you want some distractions? But so here as a parent, you can really co-regulate and try all sorts of ways to deal with emotions. For example, breathing exercises or listen to a yoga podcast or introduce like alternative behavioral strategies. I think in this population or like with elementary school uh, children, As a parent, you can really try to uh, co-regulate, try out new strategies together with them.
0: Lisa, do you have any thoughts or anything to add there?
2: Well, I was just thinking like the children that I've encountered in the clinical practice who engaged in MSSI, they often already had a couple of activities that they did to calm down, but they didn't really acknowledge those activities as this can help me when I feel the need to solve injury. And just basically by pointing out or, or Trying to find those act, those activities together with them often helps a lot. It can be like listening to music, drawing, playing a game, I don't know. But these are all things that they actually know and that they already do, but they don't acknowledge it yet as self-suiting or, or helpful behavior, so to speak. So that might also be helpful if parents can kind of look at those behaviors
1: as well. And I think what I hear from most young children or young adolescents is that they find it very difficult to be alone at that time. So just trying to be there while still acknowledging their boundaries. You can even sit outside of their door if it's closed, but just being there and being present and keep on checking in as a parent. Is there something that I can do for you? You know where you can find me when you want to talk? Do you want to take a walk with me or... Would you like to do something? Would you you like to go to the city or to a movie? Really, as a parent here, you can also be a very safe environment also, just like that you can counter their loneliness.
0: Yeah, thinking about your comment related to a holding environment, I think about parents being almost like an emotional container. For their child mm-hmm. obviously serving as a role model because if you know we lose our cool mm-hmm. and tell our kids that are seven years old to keep it together that's not very realistic but being able to create like a permeable semi-permeable I should say emotional container where we can model how we manage big emotions that might often result in self-injury but instead we can model how we might manage that and then encourage our our young children to do that so we don't allow their emotions to permeate and overflow into our own and vice versa.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think in, in elementary school children, there's still a lot of connection within the family and with you as a parent and a child. Well, as you go into adolescents, you, of course, will also have the more developmental stage where they, they're looking for autonomy and their own identity. And there's more boundaries or more space between the, the adolescent and the, and the parent, which is a normal developmental stage. And there it's far more difficult to provide a more holding environment as a parent or to also co-regulate emotions. It's far more difficult due to the developmental period there. But I think with elementary school children, It could really help if you can be close to them and and try to also be a good role model.
0: A couple of behavioral strategies that I have heard parents use, and I can share my thoughts on them, but I want to hear your thoughts from the two of you. One, body checks, because parents are going to want to make sure that their kid is not self-injuring and they're going to say like a nine, 10-year-old who's been cutting, their parents might say, all right, I'm going to look at your body and make sure you haven't. That, and then also going into the room in searching for objects and locking them away or taking them away, even if they're not necessarily used typically for self-injury, but could be. So maybe there are certain toys or certain utensils used for art. So how effective are those two methods?
1: I have some ideas about that, but it's especially related to research that I did in in a young adolescent sample, so between ages 12 and 14. And there we had a lot of parents that had a similar pattern so we also saw statistical differences in controlling parenting behaviors over time so that parents become more behavioral controlling but also more psychological controlling so they try to control the emotions of the child they ignore for example negative emotions or they become angry when they're crying or so on but also a lot of behavioral controlling behaviors so Even harsh punishment significantly increased there. So the harsh punishment, for example, forcing a child to stay in a room or slapping a child or really harshly punishing uh, was significantly increased after discovery of NSSI for some parents. And that in turn has a very negative effect on the NSSI severity and frequency. So I would really try to explain to parents that I can imagine it might be a way to your initial coping strategy as a parent to try to control behavior, but it might not be the best behavioral strategy. Just support your child in the cessation of NSSI.
0: Much less invasive then. Yeah. Yeah. When should parents seek therapy for their 6 to 12-year-old child if they're self-injuring?
1: It's important as a parent to check in with yourself and your partner, for example, or your GP, and and discuss the behavior. I don't think that everybody or every child who is self-injuring directly needs to go to professional help. Maybe it's also something they try once or twice and it will pass might be something that they experiment on. But if you notice that the self-injury is really severe, for example, if there's medical care needed, if there's wound infections, for example, uh, or if the, the child says that it's more severe than they expected themselves and they don't remember that they did it, Or when a child injured more than five days in the past year or when there's signs for suicidal thoughts and behaviors or other mental health difficulties. And especially also if you have the feeling yourself as a parent that you feel overwhelmed or as a family and you experience a lot of stress, then it's uh, maybe a good idea to reach out for therapy.
0: What would be your top recommendation of what parents should take away? Like, What do they really need to know about non-suicidal self-injury, especially among 6 to 12-year-olds?
1: Well, I think if you are a parent of a child between 6 and 12, firstly, you just need to be a little bit informed. What is NSSI? How prevalent is it in elementary school? You no, know, it's not. It's quite rare. It's not something which happens a lot, but it's a possibility. What are the functions? How can I react as a parent or should support my child? How can I express my worries? And so they really should know that their first reaction is really imperative. And furthermore, they should really try to provide a safe environment without controlling the child. And a very important take-home message as well is that they should take good care of themselves as a parent. Uh, So self-care is important to know. And then lastly, it might be important to not tend to wounds themselves if they feel that they become overwhelmed while they tend to the wounds or if they see it's a positive reinforcing cycle for the anesthetist side, and it's better for a doctor to take care of the wounds.
0: Lisa, based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to parents yourself?
2: It's kind of the same that Imke has already said. I think the most important one is to take care of themselves. Because they can't take care of that child if they're not taking care of themselves. Because sometimes parents can get overwhelmed as well, which can lead sometimes to like what I see in a clinical practice, for example, is that parents are so overwhelmed that they express things that they wish they did not express sometimes. And then the child feels even more disconnected and it continues. So I think taking care of yourself is very important. Also be aware that you're a role model for your child, especially when it comes to coping with emotions. Um, it's really important to know that they're subconsciously observing you and also looking at what you're doing when you're feeling overwhelmed. And then I think it's also really important, as Inke said, that they feel that they are in a safe environment and that they can also always connect to you when they feel really down or if they're not feeling well, that you're always there as a parent to support them.
0: And based on our conversation today, what would you each recommend to professionals, whether other researchers or other clinicians, therapists?
1: I think it's very important for clinicians, researchers and uh, and, uh, clinicians, to aim for evidence-informed practice and to try as clinicians together with researchers really try to gain our insights into what is helpful for parents, for the schools, for uh, children who engage in MSSI and for the clinicians who work with the children and the families. Uh, try to g- take good care of yourself. I think also there you're a very important role model as a clinician. And for example, look for a supervisor, or go to an intervention group, stay informed, Go to workshops and and trainings um, to uh, also really gain your insights into the behavior, but also your confidence. I think that's the most important thing, that you feel confident as a clinician to work with families and children, uh, and that you try to remain respectful, curious, uh, and most importantly, also hopeful. Lisa? Yeah, I think Imke
2: has has said it all. I think what I do remember, however, that it happened not that long ago. I remember like some children, they tend to want to show you the wounds, for example. That's what happened to me anyways. And I think it's really important as a clinician or as a professional at that time that you need to know that it's not the most important thing to do, to be looking at it. And basically it's, it's better to learn to understand why they're doing it, what might be alternatives instead of actually, you know, endangering yourself, so to speak. It's like a weird thing to say or something, but just because it can be triggering to look at those wounds. So that's also a, a form of self-care that's really important as a clinician, I think.
1: Maybe also a recommendation for the researchers is to really try to invest also in outreach materials or to invest in translational research to really try to translate what we know from research and how can we adapt it to the fields also. For example, maybe examine the effectivity of trainings for staff or early prevention packages. So maybe also just look into those gaps in research.
0: And based on our conversation today, what would you recommend to people with lived experience of self-injury, whether they're young children, I I don't know if they'd be listening to the podcast, but just in general, uh, children, adolescents, and adults?
1: So they should know that they're not alone and try to find somebody they can trust and talk to. They can be mindful in what helps them downregulate or self-suit themselves or how to deal with urges. And I hope especially that they can be mild for themselves and try to flourish self-compassion. I don't really have anything to add to that. I think that's a, <laughs> a great conclusion.
0: Well, thank you both for joining us today and sharing about a topic that we rarely, again, talk about, but it does happen. And hopefully parents and professionals listening to this feel less anxious about when they find out a young child is engaging in self-injury and still be able to maintain that matter-of-fact, dispassionate demeanor, respectful curiosity, low-key response that's emotionally neutral and caring. Thank you both for taking the time out of your day to contribute to the podcast.
2: Thank you.
0: Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Psychology of Self-Injury podcast. If you have found this podcast helpful, please subscribe and please help others find us by giving us a five-star rating, writing a positive review, and or telling your friends and colleagues. Stay tuned for next month's episode of The Psychology of Self-Injury, in which we discuss digital interventions for NSSI. It is not considered therapy or meant to be a replacement for therapy, so if you or someone you love is in crisis and needs to talk to someone, you can reach out to the Crisis Text Line, a global not-for-profit organization providing free mental health texting service through confidential crisis intervention, by texting HOME to 741741. For all things psychology, follow me on Instagram and Twitter at DocWesters, For all things self-injury, follow I Triple S on Facebook and Twitter at I-T-R-I-P-L-E-S. I'm Dr. Nicholas Westers. Thank you for listening to The Psychology of Self-Injury.